this is not your typical like Christmas passage, right? <laughs> I was think I so we've been trying to stay true. This is the last sermon in a in a series we're doing on margins and we're doing, you know, 10 months of the book of Acts and as I was kind of mapping out all the sermons as part of my job, I got to like I got to the scheduling to the end of this series and I was like, well that's a weird thing to talk about. Um and and can I avoid that? And so I kept trying to like move it around because I'm like, the last thing I want to do is talk about, you know, and he uh, was eaten by worms and died. Like that's not like, and let's go open presents and Merry Christmas. And so I kept wrestling with it. And finally I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to give in to the flow and just trust that when we get to this message, God will have something for us that hopefully can make sense and, and tie together the things we need to for Christmas. And I think, I think it does in this kind of strange roundabout, roundabout way. Um, because we've been talking through in this series of margins how there are all these people, as the gospel is moving out, all these people that don't realize that the gospel's for them. That it's, it, they thought it was just a, a ethnic-centered reality um, for people who were Jewish looking for a Messiah. But this Messiah wasn't ethnically bound um, and wasn't confined, as we saw the very first sermon in this series, to the walls of the temple, that the Spirit was at work and moving, rushing along, and that, that the Spirit of God was for, for the world. And so this sermon this morning, as we end it now, is, is that Jesus is for the world, the world around us. And we look here at Herod Agrippa, and we see, like, how could this... Like, why is this there? Like, you have to remember, the Bible's not written because they're trying to give you all these historical facts of everything. Sure, there's some history in Scripture, absolutely. But a lot of it is written in a very intentional way. You know, like if you were to read even different accounts of, like, the kings in the Old Testament, you would find that in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, how they even talk about the kings there are different. Um, they leave out some kings. That's on purpose. Like the Bible isn't just always trying to give like this incredibly precise, always accurate thing as much as trying to say, this is important. We want you to hear this. This is written for a reason. And so we have to always ask the question, what did this writer intend? Why does Luke want us to read this? And what is it supposed to mean to us? What are we supposed to get out of it? And that's always the challenge in Scripture, to not make it say what we want it to, but to let it say to us what the writer was trying to, to get across. As we talked about last week, Herod is the son of Herod the Great. Herod Agrippa is the son of Herod the Great. And what we know about Herod the Great was that um, he lived when Jesus was born. Um, he almost is single-handedly responsible for the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem, which is a really big deal. Like, he was truly beloved by many people in Palestine, Israel at that time because he restored the thing that was desecrated time and time again, um, whether by the Babylonians or by the Greeks. And so he restores this temple, but then also this Herod the Great He's great for a reason in that um, he worked hard to get that greatness and he's not going to lose it anytime soon. So as soon as he gets wind of a new king um, that was just born, he massacres, he's a genocide, he massacres every child two and under. 
And so, and sometimes we read that at Christmas and we're like, and you know, this happened and you're like, goodness gracious, like what a time in history. Like how incredibly evil and sad that is that so many people lost so much that forever stuck with them. And then we see years later, his son is ruling this kind of northern area of Palestine, Israel. Um, He's in the back pocket of Rome. His name's Herod Agrippa. And this apple doesn't fall far from the tree. If anything, that apple just drops straight down because he starts taking this evilness now to, to a new level. We saw last week that it, it said that he desired to lay violent hands, in verse 1, violent hands on the church. And he starts off by killing James, the apostle, like murders him. And he does it because he's trying to get some kind of political angle here. It's about power. He sees that if he can get in the right like situation with the right people, that he'll kind of curry political favor. And it goes so well in killing James, he goes, well, I'm going to arrest Peter. Like, I'm really going to get to the source now. And he arrests him to eventually murder him. And we see there was a miraculous escape for Peter. Quite amazing. But what I want you to keep in mind is, Herod is talked about here because there's some kind of power grab he's going for. And the writer, Luke, wants us to see this power grab and how this power grab is not just happening then, it's been happening forever. That there are people in power doing evil things and they will always keep suppressing people to keep their power and their greatness. And this has always been kind of this flow of not just scripture, but even in history. And Luke could have stopped there, but he tells us in verse 20, he goes, it says that Herod, after all this with Peter, Herod goes up to Caesarea. And Caesarea was like this city that truly, like he, he like rebuilt this town himself. It was like what his dad did in Jerusalem, he does in Caesarea. And he builds this, this theater. It was known that he built this theater there and where they would have different games and whatnot. And he was beloved in, in Caesarea. And he had all this power. He was always trying to keep the power and keep his hand and hold and pull the strings to make people be puppets for him in this whole area of Caesarea and further north. And it says that representatives from Tyre and Sidon, um, they came to him. Now, Tyre and Sidon were both coastal towns further up north. They're in modern-day Lebanon today, but further up north. And they were influential towns. They had actually gained political independence from Rome. Um, So they're kind of left on their own. But they also were subjected to whoever had power in the land there near them. And it seems that Herod had the kind of power that could cut off their food supply. That they, they go to Blastus, who is like this right-hand person for Herod, to like go, hey, we need, we need you to put in a good word for us. We, we want to eat. Like, and somehow Herod is trying to hold back from what we're seeing any kind of resources from them to strong-arm them, to put a power play on them so that they then would give him their total allegiance. Just the maneuvering the politics of it all. I mean, it, 
It's interesting and sad. History's never changed. The world's never changed. We see this time and time again, don't we? Well, it, it's these political moves that happen, whether in our country or other countries, to get an angle, to get hand in somehow, some way for us to have some kind of control. And that's what Herod is doing. And so it seems like he does it. And then we read, let's read here in verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Now on, on the appointed day, it's trying to actually talk about um, there were these games that were being held at this time in history. We know this, actually, because as much as we always don't have things maybe written about Jesus or other things historically, I mean, we, we can find some things. We have the rest of these things, in, especially in Acts, kind of being confirmed in this situation specifically. There's a, a historian named Josephus, and he wrote several volumes of antiquities where he was this historian for Rome, and he was putting down all the things happening there, and he specifically writes about this situation with Herod, that there were these games being held. Now, why were the games being held in this theater that Herod had built? It's because um, Caligula had just, however you want to talk about it, been removed, and Claudius now was stepping into power to be the new emperor. And so these games were being held in honor of Claudius and Claudius' reign. And Herod is doing these games, of course, to get political favor with the new emperor. Everything's about power. Everything is a grab. And so what we see is that Herod shows up, and it says that he wore his royal robes. Now, um, Josephus, whether he was there or he has firsthand accounts, he actually describes Herod's robes. He says, a garment so wrought with silver that the rays of the rising sun striking upon and reflecting from it dazzled the eyes of the beholders. So Herod is showing up in some kind of like the silver, you know, robes of sorts, and you know he's doing things on purpose here. And he's standing up, the sun's reflecting on they can't even barely see him, and they're like, you talk about power, this person has power. I mean, the moves, I mean, you know, you know this, politicians even specifically wear certain ties and certain colors and certain suits because it communicates different kinds of messages. Maybe you don't know this, but there are like power ties. Did you know this? There are power ties. And these ties communicate like, you need to listen to me. I'm the one that holds power. And we can do this even through shoes or jack. I mean, whatever it may be. Clothing communicates so many things today just like it did then. So he shows up in these vestments, these these robes, and they're dazzling, and the people are looking. And can, have you ever been dazzled by someone in power? Yeah, it's really easy to happen. It's like like smoke screens, right? Like it's you're you're looking at it, and you're like, I think I don't like this person. I think this person like has an angle. Surely I should believe this. Surely I can't believe everything just this news channel on this side or this news channel on this side gives me, but I can't help but buy into it. Like, and even more so, we don't even need the clothes. We have things like Twitter and Instagram. Nothing curates an image better than Instagram. 
the right kind of lighting, you know what I'm talking about, right? The right kind of setting, the right kind of food, and you just kind of want people to be dazzled. Truly, that's what we want. We actually want to be dazzled. And so they find themselves dazzled here. Now, here's what's crazy, though. This man is getting away. He is getting away with murder in broad daylight. He is getting away with being a tyrant and to bring tyranny upon all those he is over. But they are being so dazzled by him that he's just like, look over here, look over here. And the whole time, he's bringing evil into everything he puts his hand on. He's getting away with it. Now, let me ask you this. Just consider, are there people you see in power today getting away with things, and you're going, how do they keep getting away with that? What is going on here? Why can't somebody wake up? And trust me, I'm not like, oh, he's talking to America. I'm not just talking to America. I'm talking about the whole world. I'm talking about history. How is it someone like Hitler gets into power and wields all that he does as long as he does? How does that happen? It's not because people just want to be just foolish and idiots and be like, well, I guess that I guess he truly is this great person. There's smoke and screens. There's dazzlement going on. We get so bedazzled like by the power that people hold and they can get away with so many things. And then we sit here and we wonder how long will good people be pushed down? How long will those who are under the thumb and the suppression of others in power, how long will this stay? And you, you even, and I feel you feel kind of impotent, like I can't do anything about this except like fight back. Like let's fight back at them. But like what can you do? What can I do? Like what do you got? Like 50 people that like you and follow you on Twitter? Maybe 100? What do you got? Like 10 likes on your best day on Instagram? That's not power, right? Like you can't get very far with that. Like, you're not going to be able to show up to the White House and be like, well, I have a few things to say to you about this, and here's how it should change. And so we tend to think in these extreme ways of how to get back, and then we kind of live in this kind of impotent place of like, well, I guess nothing can happen. Now, I just want you to think about this. What do you think it was like for these Christians at this time living under this direct rule of this kind of tyrant? What kind of questions do you think they were asking themselves? How long, Lord, will this go on? Could this ever stop? I thought you wanted us to move forward with your gospel. Where are you, God? It's the questions that humans have been asking, not just today and not just 2,000 years ago, but forever. Because the question always is, like, who has the power? How do we actually get from underneath this evil power? Do we resist it? Do we fight back? How does it work? It's a little bit longer but I want to read this to you. This is a, um, um, a quote from Richard Rohr. He goes, the Bible is a conversation about power. It is not saying that all power is bad. We have become so mistrustful of power and have seen how often it has been misused, even in the Bible, that we tend to think all power is bad. However, in the Acts of the Apostles, the very word applied to the Holy Spirit is dunamis, or power. Power in the hands of a truly converted person, a person who is not egocentric. 
is necessary and good. Too often, we have aligned our power with the power of the state, the power of money, with the power of control, with the power of authority, or with the power of ambition. And as a result, we have distorted and even avoided the true meaning of spiritual power. The Bible is a conversation about power. Who's got it? How do you get it? Do the right people have it? The story time and time again for God's people being taken under, like, like invaded and taken in exile or others coming into power. It's always like, here's this new power. I hope whoever is at the top of the food chain is a good, decent person. And they couldn't find it. They never got it. The best they got was a Persian, which thank you very much. But regardless, that's the best they ever got. Um, other than that, whoever else came into power was always suppressing them further and further and further and further down. So the Bible's conversation about power, and we see in our first sermon of this whole, like two series ago, that the Holy Spirit shows up and it says, and you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So that means we're meant to have some kind of power but the question is, what does it look like? Now, here's what's interesting. These next two verses. Verse 23, it says, Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. And then the parts about worms and death. Okay. Um, okay, so here's what happens. Here's what happened for me growing up. I would read stuff like this. And I would just go, okay, so God struck him down, and God strikes down then, and God, guess, strikes down now. And, and then I would also, though, like, have a really hard time reconciling, like, Jesus and God, because if Jesus is the face of God, like, then that means, like, whoever Jesus is and what he's showing, like, I never see Jesus striking someone down. Like, Jesus actually says, put your swords aside, like, it was just kind of confusing for me. And I end up with some cognitive dissonance at times when I would, like, read the Bible and, like, what do I do with this? Here's, if you deal with that, and you may not, this, this may be perfectly okay, like, and, and the angel of the Lord struck him down. And that's so fine. I just want to kind of give another little slight nuance to go, I don't know if the writers at this time knew, el knew how else to talk about coincidental things like this other than going, well, that's interesting, this guy stands up and he is like receiving all this glory that he is God. He's not refusing it. And then all of a sudden he dies. Um, actually, Josephus helps with this again. Let me, let me put this. I think I have it on the screen for you. He actually writes about this moment. As he did not rebuke the impious flattery addressed to him, he was immediately seized with exquisite in racking tortures in his bowels, so that he was compelled before he left the place to own his folly in admitting such acclamations and upbraided those about him with the wretched condition in which they saw their God. And being carried out of the assembly in his palace, he expired in violent agonies. The fifth day after he was taken, in the 54th year of his age, and the seventh of his reign. I'm, I'm not saying that God 
didn't do it or did it or whatever. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like, I don't, it wasn't as simple as like, and he fell dead. You know, like something happened in him. Was God behind that? I don't know. I would say this, if that blocks you from God, don't worry about that part as much. If you're good with that, okay. Now, I am gonna come back around to this though, because I think there's a point in here. Regardless, notice it wasn't the people overcoming him with their power. And that is never our role. It's not our job to overcome evil, powerful people with a powerful force on our end to bring them down even to death. Regardless if God struck him down or not, let me just say this. You and I don't have the, the wisdom, understanding, or God-likeness to even try to reconcile if and when that would be okay. Just, just in case you are God, maybe you can. But don't say it out loud because you have this in Acts. Like, it seems to be, whatever this is happening here, it's big, and we're not the ones to try to figure all that out and go, well, God exactly did that or didn't. I think this is how a lot of writers would try to write. We've mentioned this with Ananias and Sapphira a few weeks ago. Sometimes you just read it and you go, it seems almost too coincidental that it maybe has to be God. But don't let that block you from God's character. Understand this. Maybe you don't have a wide enough view of God's character. I don't know. But here's what I do know. Here's the next verse. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. The word of God continued to spread and flourish. The good news could not be stopped. You cannot stop good news. If you hear nothing else from this morning, evil people cannot stop good news. They can hold it at bay. They can kind of dazzle you with all their tricks sleight of hand, and their silver robes. But at the end of the day, whoever's in power that's wielding the worst in the world, that cannot last. Because the gospel will always move forward and flourish. Because this is God's thing, not this other person in power. So the question is, though, what do we do in the space between when there are those in power and those who wield evil and there are those of us who don't have that kind of power, how do we live in that space? I think that's really important to address. And Paul helps us in Romans 12. So we're going to look there. You can turn your Bibles and look on the screen. Romans 12, 17. I'm just going to read it. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Another way to talk about wrath is God's anger. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I just want to camp here for a minute. I used to read this passage, and what I thought it was trying to tell me to do was just to be a nice person. Be a nice person. 
Like, it's telling you to be a good person. What I thought being a good person was just being a nice person. All right? Like, okay, like, hey, brother, I know you're bringing all this kind of genocide and things to the world, but I'm praying for you. Nope, that's not the response. Uh-uh. Because that feels so, like, not Christ-like. And it's weird in our niche of the world in space and time because we have not been infringed upon as much as other countries that are being that are vulnerable we kind of go like what's kind of this way for everybody and we just kind of need to live at peace with each other and be nice and i kind of got my good life going you got your good life going and and let's just hey listen if we can say like hello to each other before we go into our carports like let's do that and i think that's why a lot of people get tired of like churches talking they just want to like zone them out because churches and the people in the churches, me, you maybe, we confuse being just a nice person with being a good person. Now, Paul is being very clear with us on some things. He says, listen, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Don't dish back what's been done to you. Jesus even said, you heard it, he goes, you've heard it said eye for an eye. Now, here's the thing. If you take from me and I take back from you, we've started a cycle that just can't end. And that's the history for a lot of places, even in the Middle East today. There's a lot of people don't understand maybe even the conflict between like people groups like in, within Israel and Palestine. It's you take, I take back. You take, I take back. It just kind of keeps going. And it ends up in many ways being very tribalistic, very guarded. And so if you ever come in here don't you cross me. I'll be a nice person until you cross me. And Paul's like, that's been tried. Like we have historical precedence even here, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work repaying evil for evil. And so then he goes on to say, do not take revenge. Do not vindicate yourself. And revenge is almost like, it's evil, right? But it's like, it's, it's like almost passive aggressive in some ways. Like it's almost like you work in a plan of how this is going to happen one day. Scheming it all. You don't necessarily always confess like the anger and hurt and rage you have towards someone. And then on the moment's right, it almost like the vindication comes out. I don't know about you, but like honestly, my favorite superhero is Batman. I want to be a vigilante. Matter of fact, I could tell you, I realized, I've mentioned before, if I could be um, a professional wrestler or a manager, I'd do that. If I could have played for the Braves, I would have done that. I actually realized the other day, I think I found maybe my true job. My true, it's not a full-time job, but it's going to be a great side hustle one day. I want to be the person that regulates how people are driving on the roads every day. I realized that. I want to be the person that when you are too slow in the left lane, I just always stay on your tail end there. You know what I mean? I look at you in the rearview mirror. I wave at you. I give you the face. I tell you to move over. I want to be that guy. And then when you pull over, I want to look at you, and I want to pull you over, and I want to take your license for the next month. All right? If you do that twice, I'll take it for, for two months. Do that three times, you're out of it for a year. I want that kind of power. I want to move all over Memphis and bring shalom to our city with all the people who have no clue how to drive, especially in inclement weather. 
How, do, how, do, how does this happen? Why is it we think when it's raining, I need to drive 10 miles faster, right, and swerve more, like I'm, I'm in a race? I want that kind of power. I think I'd be great at that, right? Because I already do that to people. I already come up on their end, and I already look at them, and I, 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 I'm getting better at not pointing, but I still point sometimes, okay? That just happens. I'm not proud of it, but I'm also not ashamed of it, so I don't really know what that means exactly. But I want that kind of power. I think I'd do well with that kind of power. I want to punish people so many times. That's what vindication is. And Paul's like, that's not going to work. So here's what Paul tells us. Don't let evil have victory, but find victory over evil through goodness. He says, do not be overcome by evil. Don't let the tidal waves of evil be the last word. Don't let the people in power who will the evil get the last word. And yet, you don't fight back with the same thing that they're using. You now overcome evil with good. I've been to support to you, but I, I, one of the first lessons I learned in my early 20s from a, a guy discipling me was this whole notion of not living against or not being an anti-minded person. The, the most basic, lowest level of human interaction when you want change is to be against. It happens in marriages all the time, right? Like, I need to get bigger than you and, like, try to force you to change into doing something. So if I yell enough, cry enough, manipulate enough, maybe things will happen. And then you get therapy and hopefully you learn. It doesn't really work that well. If it's still working for you, man, go to therapy. So like, but like that's the thing, it doesn't really work that well, right? It has a runway, a short runway to it. I remember this, this, this mentor of mine, he asked me, he goes, Robin, what's the difference between someone who is anti-abortion and pro-life? And I was like, nothing. And he goes, oh, everything. He says, you see, one person stands as this young lady is walking in there, scared out of her mind, of what's happening in her life and her body. And they stand there with these signs and they say, don't kill that baby. Who are you? God hates baby killers. Whatever it's gonna say. And so they're trying to bring this anti-approach. He goes, but the person who is pro-life isn't picketing, but is standing at the door when the young lady gets to the door and with tears says, I'm so sorry you're here at this moment. I can't imagine what you're going through right now. And I want you to know something. If you want to go inside, I'll go inside with you. And if you want to go to my house and sit down and have some tea and talk, we can do that as well. But I want you to know I'm with you. I'm not against you. Which one sounds more compelling, do you think? It's the one who's willing to stand at the door, obviously, and go, I'm willing to be with you. When we live in such an against mindset, like, okay, you're either pro-life or pro-choice. Those are our two options. And then, so if you're pro-life, you're against women actually caring for themselves, having rights with their bodies. If you're pro-choice, you're a baby killer. That's it. That's our binary conclusion. And that's what we want to fight against. And we wonder why there's more and more identity politics and identity positions than ever before. And we end up yelling at each other, trying to overcome the other person with the tactics they're using. 
And we get further and further and further away to eventually, it's such a wide swinging pendulum, we're living in echo chambers and only listening to Fox News or CNN. And we wonder why people want to hashtag empty the pews, hashtag exvangelical, because we don't a lot of times have better solutions than to just try to dig our heels in and go, this is the issue and this is the thing. Instead of going, maybe there's a conversation to have and maybe there's a way to not overcome evil because each side looks at the other side as what they're doing is evil. But to overcome it with good, not nice, not, hey, brother, I love you, and you're just like completely fake. But instead, like, I want to be a good person. We're scared of that sometimes, I think, to be a good person. But the Bible's really interested in you being a good person. Being a kind person, a loving person, a generous person, a thoughtful person, an engaging person, a with person. And I think it's because we live in such, we're just doing what was handed to us to live in these binary ways. And we're too scared to step out of that binary reality instead of going, maybe the world's not as simple as this side or this side. Maybe there is more space and room to talk through some things. And at the end of the day, maybe just learn how to be with each other as best as we can. I think that's what Paul is trying to help us with. See, that's where real power comes. When you now don't like try to fight the tactics with what you think is supposed to be fighting against because what was given to you, but instead, like, you now go, I want to bring goodness here. And Jesus is the perfect example of this. Like, he is so backhanded sometimes, isn't he? You read him, and he is not a nice person. Like, he's insulting, isn't he? I wonder what his Twitter feed would be like on some things. He probably wouldn't be on Twitter, right, because he's, like, holy. But, like, I wonder what his feed would be. I, I, don't, I think he would be trying to find really insightful, nuanced ways that say, hey, when somebody like slaps you with their proper hand, turn the other cheek so they have to slap you like in a way that makes you an equal with them. So now you're on their playing field. Like he's really creative. We talked, if you want to listen to that stuff, we talked through that in a sermon series last year on the Sermon on the Mount, all the ways that Jesus did that. He's so creative, and he's so good. And I think, like, we miss out on that because we just think that, one, the powers that be, first off, we go, the powers that be, God's in control, and he'll do it. Nope, you can't do that. You have to engage it. Or I have to fight the powers that be with their own power. Can't do that either. So we need something better. And I think Jesus offers us that. Because make no mistake about it, Christmas is about God coming in flesh to bring about a new type of power. Dr. Martin Luther King said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And here's why I think that's important. Because no matter what's happening in the world around us, ultimately God and his word flourishes and multiplies. And we have to live in that space between and here's how I want to end it. I've been trying to think about how to talk about this particular couple of verses for three years now on a Christmas sermon. I've been sitting on this for three years, right? I've been wanting to preach Revelation 12 for three years on Christmas, and everybody's like, Robin, don't preach Revelation 12 on, on a Christmas sermon. And I was like, 
I'm going to do it this year. And here's why. If you've ever read Revelation 12, it's wild. You got like this dragon that's coming down to consume this woman that's like clothed with the sun and got stars around her head, which that represents like Israel. And you got this dragon who is the enemy, Satan, coming to consume her through all the different powers of the time. And so uh, she gives birth to this baby, Jesus, all right? And so Jesus comes, and now we have this little baby that is so vulnerable, and this dragon wants to consume it, but it can't because God's protecting this baby because this baby is going to bring new power in the world. And then it says, I love it, in verses 10 and 11, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And listen to this. And they have conquered him. They have overcome him. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 12. The same word here. They have overcome him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony for they have loved not their lives even unto death. Friends, what's it take for us to have that kind of reality and that kind of altruistic living in the world? That we're willing to like stand in the face of the enemy and the dragon of the powers that be and say, this isn't the last word. This isn't gonna happen right now. Well, you need two things. One, you need a God big enough and loving enough, but also condescending enough to die for you and to show the absurdity on the cross of how you can't keep killing to stop the killing. That's part of the beauty of the cross, the absurdity of killing, the absurdity of blood back for blood. It says, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And what's your testimony? That you have a God who's been good to you. You have a God that's been understanding and loving to you, who has met you where you are, and now you and I have a testimony of goodness in this world that truly can overcome evil, even the hairs of our day. And listen, it doesn't happen fast, it doesn't happen quick, but it's only if we stand and go, I don't have to repay evil for evil, but I'm going to find a way to bring goodness in this world and let that be the way that evil is overcome. That's the Christmas message. That's what a baby in a manger represents to us. That's who our Jesus is. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask now as we come to your table that we would truly see, maybe more than ever before, how we overcome and find victory in the world through what you have shown, by you going to weakness, we now can be raised up. You emptied yourself of power, but you found true power in that through vulnerability. And in that goodness and in that love, it truly overcame all the hatred. And that's what we want to do as well. So we pray that it'll be more than this memorial service for us, but we'll be truly moved by your spirit as we come to your table. In your name we pray. Amen.